Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your hosts, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo, providing you the most consequential stories at the intersection of law and politics at the midweek. On the podcast today, we will discuss and analyze the chief judge of the federal district court in D.C. denying Rudy Giuliani's efforts to dismiss a case of intentional infliction of emotional distress and defamation brought by two Fulton County, Georgia election workers falsely accused of voter fraud by Giuliani and the Trump campaign, in which that judge also finds enough alleged evidence of a civil conspiracy between Trump and Giuliani to commit election fraud in Georgia. Speaking of Georgia, Senator Adu Declare Graham loses his bid to have SCOTUS prevent him from having to testify to Fawny Willis's Fulton County special grand jury on what else? Conspiracy to commit election fraud. The long-awaited criminal trial brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office against Donald Trump's Trump Organization for tax fraud begin, has begun in a Manhattan courtroom this week with some devastating testimony against the defendants already, only interrupted by what else? COVID. Karen Friedman Agnifilo, formerly the number two lawyer in that illustrious prosecutorial office, comments. Trump tries to run out the clock to avoid having to disclose his tax returns to Congress, his House Ways and Means Committee, before January and the new Congress takes over, as Chief Justice Roberts continues the order in place to stay the turnover of those tax returns until after November 10th and the full court can consider it. This House Ways and Means Committee has a hard out in January. And finally, we will discuss the Supreme Court's oral arguments this week on two cases challenging the right of universities to continue to consider a candidate's race or ethnicity in the class selection process, what is commonly known as affirmative action. And based on the questions during a five and a half hour long oral argument, it looks like the program will be pared back considerably unless Justice Roberts can find a way in the votes to save it. This is Legal AF. I am Michael Popak. And Karen, what an action-packed lineup for today. How are, how are you? I haven't seen you in a week. I know. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And we're coming off of President Biden's speech today. We're going to have a, some new additions to the audience today. We welcome you to the midweek edition of Legal AF. Let's dive right in. We have so much to talk about, and let's kick it off with what is happening with Rudy Giuliani and the defamation case that's pending against him in Washington, D.C. Let me set the stage. Two election workers in Fulton County, temporary election workers, a mother and a daughter, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss, filed um, a defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and civil conspiracy case originally against Rudy Giuliani and against the OAN network. And they filed that in the District of Columbia. Why? Because Democrats can and progressives can forum shop just like anybody else. And the District of Columbia, they believed, would be a better forum for them to litigate these issues than in Georgia, than even in New York, where Rudy Giuliani usually plies his trade. And they filed the case in the District of Columbia under District of Columbia law, 
a little known body of law we don't often talk about here. It is a district. It has its own law. It has its own precedent and body of law. And that, and that is what um, the plaintiffs in this and the plaintiffs' lawyers in this case wanted to rely on because it's so much in their favor. And they are, uh, they are represented in the case by an entity called projectdemocracy.org. You should go look it up and a couple of um, major New York-based law firms and Yale Law School all throwing their weight behind this case. And we have a ruling from Chief Judge uh, Beryl Howell. Ben and I talked about her at length on Saturday because as the Chief Judge, she's also responsible for supervising all of the Department of Justice grand juries. And there are multiple criminal grand juries going on in Washington, D.C. about Donald Trump January 6th, fake elector scandal and the like. So there's a lot of hearings that have been going on in her courtroom, secret hearings to date until, unless and until those uh, those facts are released. And that's where people have heard Judge Beryl Howell, but she's also a sitting trial judge and she has to decide cases and has to decide motions to dismiss like Rudy Giuliani's. And she has ruled in favor of the plaintiffs against Rudy Giuliani we're going to break it down for you now. Uh, Karen, in your read of the decision, by uh, what, what struck you the most about her preliminary findings about the allegations in the case? So as you said, they filed a complaint alleging various charges, including defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and conspiracy. And this was the motion to dismiss under 12b-6, which is what uh, happens in civil cases where you have to, they, they have to analyze, the judge has to analyze whether or not if you look at the facts that are alleged in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs, have they alleged uh, the elements of the, of, um, the charges. And so what the judge was saying is there's enough to move forward and now move to the discovery phase and ultimately potentially a trial if the case doesn't settle. And a lot of civil cases are decided at this uh, at this kind of, you know, in, um, beginning phase, you know, these 12B6 motions. So I think this was a significant, um, a significant hurdle that, uh, that they had to overcome and they did. And what struck me about this particular, to answer your question, what struck me about this particular uh, 27 page decision by Justice Howell was uh, she, you know, she, she really went through and took us through the elements of what you know what the facts are and the elements of each thing that the plaintiffs would have to prove and you know it's interesting because um because there were a couple of things a couple of factual uh, factual assertions in the complaint that i thought were noteworthy number one is you know giuliani says um that you know his his de his defamation of them is that they had suitcases full of ballots and that they had them hidden and that they got rid of the election the 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 republican monitors who were the the vote count 
counting monitors and then they pull these secret suitcases out and they you know pull the ballots out and um, and that they have criminal convictions, you know, they're criminals who are doing this, et cetera. And Giuliani even went so far as to slice and dice a, um, a, uh, a bunch of videos to make it look like that's what happened, taking what was investigated and completely debunked as anything nefarious and, and showing that that was just standard procedure. So she sort of methodically went through that. But what was interesting is she also put together a timeline that showed even after this was widely debunked that this was not true, Giuliani continued over and over and over to make these assertions, whether it was on a podcast or on news shows or whatever it was. And it caused extreme harm and damage to the mother and daughter um, uh, plaintiffs here, you know, they were getting death threats, they were getting people would order Domino pizza, Domino's pizza to their house, you know, that they never ordered and, and, you know, they were, they had to move. I mean, just really like, like really scary, um, upsetting things were happening to them. So the judge showed that, you know, even if Giuliani initially thought there might be some thing to this, you know, this, this claim, uh, it was debunked and he still said it over and over and over again. The other thing the judge, um, the judge said was that, uh, you know, there's, there's an open question here about what's going to be the standard that they have, the standard of proof that they're going to have to, or I should say the stand, the, the intent, the intent that they're going to have to prove here. Um, because if, if they're just normal private citizens, which they were, you know, then it's just they only have to show negligence. But if they are um, public figures or there's something called a limited purpose public figure, then they have to show actual malice, which is, you know, a, high, a much higher a much higher standard. And, you know, the judge said, even if you find I'm not finding that they're a limited purpose public figure, but even if even if they were, then there's enough here to make out a claim at this stage of actual malice. Um, and Giuliani at one point said uh, in his in his papers that well, you know, a lot of this is protected First Amendment and it's opinions. You know, I, I can have opinions, and this is just opinions. But she again, the judge was very specific to say, you know, because that can be a defense sometimes to to defamation. You know, I. I think you're ugly or I think you're whatever. And um, and and uh, what she said was some of the things that he was saying are are not opinions. There's things that can they're facts that can be readily debunked. Like, you know, does one of them have a criminal record? They either do or they don't. You know, that that kind of thing. So so I thought that was interesting. But I, I have a question for you, um, Popak, on this, you know, if they are limited purpose public figures, it's only because Giuliani started this and defamed them. I don't know. It didn't seem fair to me that if Giuliani is the one who caused them to be limited purpose public figures, that he should then benefit from a higher standard of actual malice. I don't know. What did you think about that? I don't think they're, I don't think they're limited purpose public figures, and I don't think the judge is ultimately going to find they are. And I think you're right. I don't think you can create or conjure up the status for the plaintiff because you've made them notorious because you've put them in harm's way and into the media. And let's talk, let me talk a little bit about that. So there is a video, which you referenced a little bit about, which the judge refers to as the um, edited video. 
the counting of the votes in Fulton County took place in many places. And one place it took place in was the State Farm Arena. In the State Farm Arena, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of election workers, most of them temporary, all properly trained, one of them being, or two of them being this mother-daughter group of the plaintiffs, the Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss. They do many things in electronic balloting, including moving counted votes off the table to under the table into locked boxes, and then moving those locked boxes um, out of the room or into different areas so that there's no confusion. And there's checks and double checks. And I've been involved with election, the election process in Florida. And I know this process pretty well from being inside the room during counting. And so they took a video, the bad people here, Giuliani and the Trump campaign, likely knowing that this was not what it was revealing, but it was, it made for good press for them and good and good argument for them on their podcasts and on their uh, tweets and social media. They argue that the video of Ruby and Shane showed that they were taking out from under their desk 18,000 or more votes, I don't know how they could know what was in the box, and putting them back through the machine, all for Joe Biden. That is how ridiculous this allegation was, with not a shred of evidence or proof. In fact, when you watch the full one or two hour video, which the uh, Georgia uh, Inspector General and Office of uh, you know, the um, FBI for Georgia did, all you see is proper conduct in moving ballots locked in boxes from table to room throughout their flowchart of a procedure that they have to follow. That's not what Rudy Giuliani said on his podcast and showing the video, and that's not what he said when he went on television. What he said was, this is a video that will be viewed 100 years from now showing the fraud that happened in Fulton County. It got so bad against these two plaintiffs that the FBI put them under protective custody and told them to relocate from their house on or about Jan 6 because they feared for their life. That's the intentional infliction of emotional distress count. The most, um, sub, the most um, important uh, finding, if you will, by Judge Howell for me in her decision was her observation because Giuliani forced her hand by filing the motion to dismiss. So now she gets to write an opinion about whether he's right or wrong. And she said, and to uh, quote her, there is ample circumstantial evidence of a conspiracy between Giuliani and the Trump campaign to commit election fraud. Chilling. That is now the second, if not more, federal judge that said that there was a conspiracy that the Trump or Trump campaign was involved in to commit election fraud, this being the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. You called her earlier by accident Justice Justice Howell. She could be Justice Howell when Biden gets reelected. She, she should be elevated to the U.S. Supreme Court. But for right now, she applies her trade as the, as the chief judge. Um, I think this is going to be a terrible uh, uh, set of uh, developments for Giuliani. If he's got any money, he should settle this case quickly based on this ruling. OAN, his co-defendant, already did settle the case. The judge noted that Giuliani refused to participate in mediation, an interesting observation. I think that was a signal to him, perhaps you want to rethink that issue. And again, this is how serious what happened in Fulton County 
is being explored by federal judges and prosecutors um, trying to bring to justice all those who that have committed these various crimes and have hurt innocence. As Judge Howell said, these two innocent people were caught in the crossfire of the false assertions of election fraud by Giuliani and others. Innocent so let me ask you, by, let me ask you another question. Yep. Given, given judge, <laughs> not justices, given what she said about, um, about what you just said about the conspiracy with Trump, do the plaintiffs amend their complaint and add him, add Trump to, to this cause of action? I don't know. I think that they uh, it, it's going to be a, deci- a tactical decision by their part. I think they really want Giuliani. I think they've decided to train their sights on Giuliani. I think um, the Trump issues, I think, at this late stage are being litigated in other places, including the, hopefully the Department of Justice, which we believe. I don't think so. I don't think I think they've got him on the ropes. They if I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, which I often often am. You got him on the ropes. You just won a major motion to dismiss. I can't tell you how many times when I've been plaintiff's counsel and I've I've defeated a motion to dismiss so that my complaint continues to the discovery phase, in this case, depositions under oath, how many times the case settles? All the time. All the time. Including oh, no. the case you, li- you like to talk about where I had a case against Kanye West. You might have heard of him in the news recently. Same thing. Same, same thing, same approach. The world's, so I think greatest, gonna... the world's greatest deposition by Michael Popak. <laughs> <laughs> that I can never show. That I happen show. to watch. That, <laughs> right, that I happen right. to see. Um, right. But, so, you know, it just, it just feels like Teflon Don once again. You know, I just, yeah. it drives me crazy that he just gets away with this stuff. So, well, here, I mean, know. I don't know if there's enough evidence in the allegations that puts Donald Trump's fingerprints on it. Certainly there's plenty for Giuliani under federal practice. Plenty yeah, against OAN. But this whole thing is about Donald Trump. But okay, we'll get yeah. there. Let's keep going. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I love people love when we when we respectfully disagree with each other. But I think I think he is being brought to justice in various places. It may not be the perfect justice of our minds, but it is. He is being held accountable. It'll just take some more time. Let's, you know, let's talk. I about, think what, oh, just really quick. I want to just comment on one quick thing about what you just mm-hmm. said. I, I agree with what you and Ben were saying on Saturday about uh, the addition of this new prosecutor Raskin to mm-hmm. the Mar-a-Lago case, that that's a signal that that I think is one more step forward towards justice happening. I agree. I, I agree. And, with and not you. to confuse everybody, not everybody watches Saturday and Wednesday. This is not um, Congressman Jamie Raskin, although we'd love it to be. It is it is David Raskin, a prosecutor's prosecutor, a career prosecutor, um, one on the Mount Rushmore of prosecutors for the Department of Justice. He is now going to be the lead prosecutor um, for all things related to Mar-a-Lago. And I think that is a terrible, terrible result for Trump and a tremendous result for justice that he is now being brought in. It shows you the seriousness uh, of which uh, at which the Department of Justice is taking the Mar-a-Lago prosecution and the velocity at which that prosecution and investigation is moving. Um, speaking of something that's moving really quickly, except for the midterms that sort of put part of it on hold, is Fawny Willis, the advisor to the special grand jury in Georgia, who under its rules makes a recommendation to the chief judge, in this case, 
uh, McBurney, Chief Judge McBurney of Fulton County, about whether an indictment should be handed down against people for committing crimes. They have already interviewed uh, under oath or brought in for testimony under oath to the grand jury, dozens and dozens of people, and all the usual suspects around Trump have tried to avoid their testimony. Giuliani tried to avoid his testimony, and McBurney was having nothing of it and made him testify over the summer. Uh, Mark Meadows has tried to, to avoid uh, giving deposition testimony or, grand, sorry, grand jury testimony um, and the like. And now we've got um, Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, who sits on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, as a minority member of the committee, who, who this is undisputed to remind everybody, he made at least one, if not two phone calls after the election to the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, and, and had a call with him in which, as reported under oath by Brad Raffensperger to both the Jan 6 Committee and to the Fulton County Grand Jury, his version of the events, because this was not tape recorded, the Trump phone call that we always talk about, about the, can't you just find me 11,700 and something votes? That was recorded. This one isn't. So you need to piece together from people's memories and their testimony who participated, what happened? Raffensperger says, this is what happened. I got a call from Senator Graham who said to me, isn't there a way to throw out those absentee ballots and, and get the election over to Trump? Lawfully cast absentee ballots. Ballots that were cast before election day, but were received, and it's okay under the statutes of these states, received after election day, and then counted and opened within the counting process, all above board, all appropriate under that state's statute. That's Raffensperger. I felt pressured by Lindsey Graham to throw out legitimately cast absentee ballots. Lindsey Graham, in his limited um, commentary in the news, says, well, that wasn't what that phone call was about. I was doing my legislative fact-finding as a member of Congress before I voted to certify an election. And he filed a case in federal court that in, um, in Georgia, North Georgia, and the North Georgia judge ruled against Lindsey Graham and said, I understand you have a certain amount of immunity, so you don't have to testify in a court proceeding under the Constitution's Speech and Debate Clause, Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1, which says that if you're doing anything that's sort of legislative in nature, including giving speeches and debates on the House floor or the Senate floor, but anything that sort of relates to your core legislative duties, you can't be hauled into court across a branch, right, from your branch, the legislative branch, over to the judiciary branch to give testimony about it. That's the constitutional protection you have. But then there's a recognition by all these courts that there is a sphere of activity outside of that, outside of purely legislative fact-finding functions that a senator does in his personal capacity, in his senatorial capacity, that isn't covered by that speech and debate clause immunity. The trial level judge said there's some things that are covered by that immunity and there's a lot of things that aren't. So you need to answer the questions 
that are posed to you in the grand jury in Fulton County about the telephone phone call that you had, about any contacts that you had with the Trump campaign, about with Trump to coordinate your efforts with their efforts to attack the fair vote and electoral process in Georgia, because that's not what you get paid to do as a senator, and that's outside your immunity protection. That was the lower court. That was the trial court. He took that up. He didn't like that response. He took that up to the 11th Circuit, which sits over Georgia, and he lost at the 11th Circuit, a three-judge panel. In fact, I think he might have even lost among the entire 11th Circuit in what's called an en banc ruling. And they said, no, the trial judge did the right thing. She said there's certain things that are legitimately inside the sphere of legislative fact-finding, immune from testimony, and there's a lot of things that are outside of it. And she gave you a procedure that if you think a question that's posed to you during the uh, the grand jury is out inside your, your immunity, you can get her on the phone and she'll make a decision right there so you have a level of protection related to that. Well, Lindsey Graham didn't like that either. So he filed an emergency application for a... Um, a stay with the Supreme Court of the United States. And the justice that sits over the 11th Circuit is Clarence Thomas. And so he did what really everybody is doing these days, all the justices, regardless of where they sit on the, on the continuum. He issued an administrative stay or a stay for now until he can decide whether he's gonna refer it over to the full nine member Supreme Court or he, or he makes the decision on his own, which he's allowed to do. And Thomas will decide whether he's going to decide it as, as he has the right to do. And so there was full briefing. The Fawny Willis's department at Fulton County filed a brief and said, we know the difference between legislative fact-finding that's immune from testimony and what isn't. And the questions we're going to ask him are not part of his legislative fact-finding duties. And he should be forced and compelled to testify because we have to get to the bottom of those phone calls that he made, and we can't do it one way with just what Raffensperger said, because that could lead to a miscarriage of justice, right? That could lead to the, the, the grand jury making inappropriate interpretations and um, findings based on a one-sided version of the conversation. So justice demands that the both participants on the phone call give their testimony. And Graham basically fall, fell back on speech and debate, speech and debate, I'm a senator, speech and debate. And we now have the ruling, uh, as short as it is, by the full United States Supreme Court. And Karen, what is it? The Supreme Court rejected Graham's request to spare him from testifying before the Georgia grand jury. There weren't any dissents. It was an unsigned order. And he has to testify on November 17th. So... Basically, what what the what they said was, as, as you pointed out, there's going to be a, a district court judge there to protect your speech and debate questions. The rest is fair game. So, you know, the, that it's not the, that the whole phone call isn't protected by speech and debate. It's question by question. Uh, and that's what's going to be asked. So that's it. It's over. Yeah. Yeah, it's over for now. I mean, I think the opening um, the opening issue what they've left open is that um, they commented that the trial judge and the 11th Circuit left in place a mechanism for the issue of whether question by question we're inside the speech and debate immunity or we're outside of it. And they like that. They said, you have a remedy if, if you have a problem while testifying, go use it. 
Exactly. And then we'll go and then we'll go from there. I'm not sure this is the end because now they're going to have the Gra the oh. Graham lawyers and the prosecutor are going to have a conversation. So it's not a cluster F or a cluster yeah. uh, AF at the actual grand jury. And they're going no, to try to get it's to gonna, get... it's going to I, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be tricky. They're going to start fighting over individual questions and right. it's going to be a mess. And then they're going to go for it. Fault, you know, Fawny's going to yeah. go for it. And it, and then they're going to get the the trial judge, not the 11th circuit and not a Supreme Court justice. They're going to get the trial judge on the phone. Hello, for those that can't see, I'm making a little phone with my hand. <laughs> and they're going to say, "Judge, we got a problem." He says it's inside speech and debate. We say it's outside. And that's it. I I you know, he can try, I don't think he's going to be able to go like an emergency application during the testimony to, on question by question. He's going to have to give the answer and he's going to have to litigate over it later. Um, and that, and I, so, but yes, there is, there is that opening. Well, yes, but if he, the this is where it could get difficult is if he refuses to answer, is the judge going to hold him in, you know, the, the whole contempt, uh, the whole contempt process gets kind of dicey because this is the kind of contempt where you're trying to compel them to testify. That's the kind of contempt where you put the person in. And I don't think any district, I don't think any judge is going to be putting Lindsey Graham in. And I don't think McBurney, Chief Judge McBurney for Fulton County is completely out of that process. Even though there is obviously a federal judge who is overseeing, is providing oversight over the Q&A, I'm not sure that's who gets the application for contempt. I think it might be McBurney who's gonna have to decide that issue. But again, I think you're right. They're, they are going to be back in front of the 11th Circuit and potentially the Supreme Court again after this thing gets rolling on November 17th, and we will report accordingly. So that's uh, yet another example, along with Kelly Ward and everybody else, who was all hot and bothered to try to keep Joe Biden from being president, um, but now is 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 too um, coward cowardly to actually testify under oath about exactly what they did. And they try to find all sorts of excuses, First Amendment protections, attorney-client privilege, um, executive privilege, speech and debate clause. What it, the reality is, testify. The truth will set you free. You've got nothing to hide. You're proud of what you did, testify. But that's not what these people are all about. And we know that now. Let's move to somebody that is gonna testify. We know it for a fact against Donald Trump's organization, and that's his longtime CFO, Alan Weisselberg, who after he's done testifying is gonna go off and serve five months in Rikers Island. Not a, not a fun place to be, and Karen, you can give more detail about that. So what do we have? We've got finally in, in Judge Marchand's courtroom in the Manhattan Sup uh, Supreme Court, which is the trial level court and the criminal, the kind of the criminal division, the prosecutors from Karen Friedman Agnifilo's old office, including Susan, is it Hoffinger or Hoffinger? Hoffinger, you'll talk about her in a bit. Susan Hoffinger on the prosecutorial side. And then you've got Su another Susan, Susan Necklace on the defense. And, and Susan Necklace's job is try to convince a jury, a jury predominantly of men, the way this thing came out, eight men and, and four women with uh, some alternates baked in there, that this crime that happened was all in the mind of Alan Weisselberg, the CFO. He did it away from the Trump organization. Nobody knew about it. Nobody knew he wasn't paying taxes on that. And if you're going to blame anybody, blame the guy who's already going to prison, Alan Weisselberg. Trump and the Trump organization had no knowledge of it. 
That's the defense. The prosecution, of course, is polar opposite. Prosecution is nothing happens in the organization at all, and especially if it involves money without Donald Trump and the, and the top people in the Trump organization knowing about it. It would be impossible for Alan Weisselberg taking, taking free rent in his Manhattan luxury apartment for years, his grandchildren's tuition on their private school, bonus money so that he could be Santa Claus in his building and give out money to the porters and the doormen at Christmas time, uh, leases on cars. Many of these documents signed with Donald Trump's signature on his own personal bank accounts. Prosecution's arguing, of course, this is a conspiracy to evade taxes for 15 years to pay under the table, the old under the table phrase, senior top level executives at Trump and avoid having them pay taxes and have it be negatively impacted on the Trump organization side. So that is the battle that's going on in the courtroom with every witness. And the first set of witnesses up for up for grabs is a very interesting one. I want to hear both your observations about the prowess of the prosecutor in this case, in general, and secondly about this controller, who frankly I'd never really in all of the research we've been doing heard much about Jeffrey McConney, who um, despite a COVID diagnosis in the middle of yesterday's testimony already testified pretty well against the Trump organization and Alan Weisselberg. Let's start with the prosecutor. Tell us what you can about her, her prowess, her, her abilities, and um, you know what, what the other side should fear knowing how, how great this prosecutor is. There's actually uh, two prosecutors on this case. Mm -hmm. So Susan Hoffinger and Joshua Steinglass. So there's more than two prosecutors, but those are the two main prosecutors on this case. And Susan Hoffinger, she's the chief of the investigation division. She's That's a pretty high up executive position. And she's also a former defense attorney. And she's very, very experienced. And she's an excellent lawyer and has a lot of experience in, in white collar uh, prosecute and white white collar defense in particular, but also prosecutions. So she knows how to, her way around a courtroom, and she knows her way around a white collar case like this. Um, but they also put Josh Steinglass on the case, and he is one of the the thoroughbred racehorse um, trial lawyers of the Manhattan DA's office. He's sort of one of the trial lawyers, trial lawyers. It's the, he's a senior trial counsel, and that's probably the most elite. Uh, most elite title you can have at the Manhattan DA's office. And it's re reserved for very, very few people. And it's the people who are the best trial lawyers who are the most experienced. And, and Josh Steinglass, who I've worked with on many cases, has handled some of the biggest cases in the office. So that was an excellent choice on, on Alvin Bragg's part to put Josh Steinglass on the case. And he he's the one who was questioning the first uh, the first witness, Jeffrey McConney. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a great trial team and they're going to try a great case. You know, it's, it's interesting how you put it, though, that um, that, you know, Trump had to know about it. I think tr I think the company had to benefit. It can't just be for Weisselberg's sole benefit. And that's really what the defense is going to be. Weisselberg say, yeah, I committed tax fraud. You know, I did it. I'm the one who benefited. But Yes, they knew they were paying me that way, but it was my obligation to pay taxes. So just because they knew they were paying me, they a didn't know that I was wasn't paying taxes, and b what was the benefit to to the Trump organization? And but, you know, one of the yeah, go, sorry, no, no, no so I was going to say, but 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 Susan Hoffinger, Hoffinger, yeah, in her opening, 
You know, you make promises to a jury in your opening that hopefully you can deliver on. Juries will punish you if you make promises in your opening that you can't deliver. And she's out on a limb in her opening in saying that to the jury, you're going to hear from Alan Weisselberg, who's going to testify that not only did he commit personal tax fraud, but that others in the organization at the highest level had to have known about it and knew about it. They're not dumb enough to put him on to, to have him say, oh, my boss didn't know a thing I was doing. I did it all myself. I had a shoebox for 15 years. I took it home every night. Nobody else knew about it. That's not what they believe that he's going to. And if he doesn't testify consistent, as you know, with the interviews that he's given in the, in, to debrief the Manhattan DA's office, then they're going to walk away from their recommendation of his five months in prison and he'll go to prison for longer. So what do you make but, of that? So I, I think, though, there's, there's two things. In addition to you know, they should have known, right? That's very different than they knew. And I'm going to prove to you that they knew. It's I'm going to prove to you that they should have known. And so that that's going to be, she's going to have to build that case. And and I think, you know, she's, we'll see if if she can. And and now that I'm a defense attorney, maybe I'm, I'm putting on my defense attorney hat a little too much here. But, you know, what I see, the, the two issues in this case are number one, okay, yeah, Trump signed the checks, but, you know, where's Trump? If Trump was really involved, if Trump was really somebody who was part of this conspiracy and knew, then you would have charged him too. But you only charged Weisselberg and you only charged the Trump organization. So that's going to be argument number one that Susan Necklace, the defense attorney, who's also excellent, uh, is going to say, I think. And the second thing she's going to say is it's not enough, even if you think that he must have known, it's not enough. They have to also prove that the Trump organization, that the company benefited from, from doing it this way. And so they're going to have to prove more than just that's Trump's signature. They're going to have to have a theory about uh, about how it is that the organization benefited from it. And I think what they're going to argue, the only benefit I can really think of is that, you know, this makes them happy and keeps them loyal. And, you know, basically you're buying his loyalty. Um, but, you know, and that, and that in and of itself benefits the company. But I, well, I, think, I, they have, I, think, I think they have something else. I think they got something else. With the payroll tax stuff? No, no, I don't think so. I, I think that for me so far from the testimony of McConnie, you have Donald Trump not writing the check for the um, private school for the grandchildren, not the children even, the grandchildren of Alan Weisselberg on the Trump organization or Trump payroll company uh, checkbook. He wrote it from his personal account. Now, that is a very odd set of circumstances within a company to have a apex officer and owner write a quote unquote business check from a personal account. And I assume there's no paper trail between Trump and the organization saying, I'm making a loan and this is a promissory note. I'm, I'm paying out Alan Weisselberg out of my personal bank account. No, it's a signature on his personal bank account. The second factor for me so far that's resonating for criminal liability for the Trump organization is that McConney testified yesterday through his coughing fit, which ended up being COVID and they had to cut the day short, but he was able to testify in front of the jury that um, after Trump became president-elect, he sent in a new face that no one had ever seen before, an outside auditor to look over the books at all of these practices, and they stopped doing all of these practices uh, and forevermore. 
And so in other words, you know, they, you know, this is a remedial measure after the fact, which indicates that you knew something was wrong and, and you fixed it when you became president of the United States or you tried to, I mean, that's only one day of one half day of testimony. We're going to have to yeah. see how the rest, how the rest plays out. But it, and let's it, just you know, hope there's no, I hope there's no mistrial. I mean, it's not, you know, yeah. he was coughing throughout this entire testimony in a closed courtroom. You don't know who else is going to catch COVID from that. Right. And yeah, if, if a know. juror doesn't, if <laughs> some jurors don't show up or if he gets really sick, I mean, let's just hope like, yeah. we're not a hundred percent out of the woods here. Yeah. I mean, I, I see, I hear it. I, I, I'm not sure there's many COVID mistrials, but maybe, maybe, maybe they've got three alternates. So hopefully they'll have enough to, to continue in this long trial, but you and I will close, keep very close tabs on it. I know it's a office that's near and dear to your heart for obvious reasons. And we will, we will, uh, we will talk more about it. And, and as we um, round out our November two two announcements first, first of all, if we can pull this off, Karen and I, are going to try to do midweek legal AF together in the same room. Don't cough on each other in a podcast studio in lower Manhattan next week. First time ever in the two year history of legal AF, the two co-anchors side by side next to each other. You and in Ben have never room. done it? No, no one's ever done it. Ben hasn't even done it with his brothers. <laughs> Nobody's ever done it. And we're going to be the first. You know why? Because we're thought leaders, Karen. Because <laughs> we're innovators. <laughs> we're going to try it first. And if it flames out miserably, Salty, our producer, will, will, will throw the book at us and we'll never do it again. <laughs> but we're going to try. We're going to try for next week. Um, and the second thing I want to talk about is a tremendous sponsor for Legal AF, which is Bombas, B-O-M. BAS. Gifting is hard, but Bombas makes it easy with socks, underwear, and t-shirts that feel good and do good at the same time. They feel good because they're thoughtfully designed with the softest materials, and they do good because for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone in need. That's really amazing. Bombas I'm makes the perfect- my, I'm wearing my Bombas socks right now. All right. So you'll wear them next week, and then you can actually show that you're. You can show me. You can show everybody you're wearing your Bomba socks. Um, and you were a uh, even before they became a sponsor. You were a big Bomba supporter. Oh, right? I, I've always been a Bomba socks uh -huh. fan. They make perfect gifts for everyone on your list. Your your favorite podcast hosts included, even your pickiest friends and relatives, because their clothes are exceptionally soft and comfortable, and give back to those in need with every purchase purchase. Bomba socks, underwear, t-shirts, and slippers are cozy upgrades to everyday basics and the perfect gift for everyone on your list, including you. Bombas uses materials like premium Pima cotton and ultra soft, never itchy merino wool in their socks and t-shirts. Fuzz, fuzzy Sherpa linings in their slippers. Who doesn't like a Sherpa lining in their slipper? Bomba's holiday collection puts a modern twist on traditional festive colors and designs. Think rich purples and greens, geometric snowflake designs, sweater-inspired textures, and retro ski patterns. With family sets, oh, I love this part. It's going to be good for the Friedman Agnifilos. With, free, with family sets, you can match with your family and friends in exceptional comfort and style. Hello, frameable holiday group photo. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? Socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And that's why Bombas 
donates one item for every item you buy. So far, Bombas has donated over 75 million items of clothing. That's a whole lot of comfort and a whole lot of good. Give the good this holiday season with Bombas and go to bombas.com slash what else legal AF and use code legal AF L E G A L A F for 20% off your first per purchase. That's B O M B A S dot com slash legal AF code legal AF for 20% off. That's a great sponsor. We love them. Absolutely. Yeah. Moving rapidly from Bombas to our final story today, the Supreme Court of the United States has taken up a 2014 case. Hard to believe. Everybody talks about justice, the wheels of justice. It's an eight-year-old case that was filed against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina by a group, I'm sure it's made up, called Students for Fair Admissions, uh, AstroTurf group, I'm sure. Um, I'm not even sure it's even made up of students, and all those students are long since graduated, uh, arguing that since Harvard and the University of North Carolina use race, a person's, a candidate's race in their selection process for choosing their class, that violates, in the case of Harvard, Title VI, which is a um, body of law about um, discrimination in higher education and that race can't be a factor. And on, in the University of North Carolina, it's under the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Why the difference? Because the University of North Carolina is a governmental entity and therefore uh, equal protection comes into place. The arguments are the same. The body of law under which each of these institutions' practices is being attacked is different. One is a constitutional attack. That's University of North Carolina. The other is a Title VI attack. All of the justices, sat in argument about the um, University of North Carolina case. Uh, Justice Kentanji Brown Jackson, because she said she would, and she's a person of her word during her selection process, sat out of the Harvard oral argument section and, and in the uh, deliberations around Harvard because she was on the Harvard Board of Overseers, basically a trustee of Harvard um, for a long, long time and went to Harvard. Um, and so it was a raucous, as far as Supreme Court oral arguments go, five and a half hour combined oral argument with Ketanji Brown Jackson not participating per se in the Harvard side, but her words that she spoke so eloquently, again, are resonating in the room regardless of which case you're on. And the, the body of precedent that's under assault is really two cases, one from about 50 years ago and one from about 20 years ago. In 1978, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Backey that in graduate school, uh, this this case was medical school, that there couldn't be that there I'm sorry there could be race as a factor in selecting a class for diversity purposes. It was a case that was brought by a white student who said she couldn't get into medical school because of the uh, university was using race as a qualifying factor, and in uh, and in Grutter or a Gruder uh, v. Bollinger from 2001, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, writing for the majority, 
ruled that for now, the admirable goal of diversity in a higher education class overcomes what on its face is race discrimination, i.e. putting your thumb on the scale because of one color or another. We recognize that, but we think the laudable goal of diversity given our history and our, that our history is so bound up with race and discrimination, we're gonna allow it. She also put in, the, in there, not as a finding, but as a comment among many in her opinion for the court that she could foresee a day, maybe 25 years in the future, when universities would not need to consider race in order to have a diverse student body. She's not a time traveler. She's not a futurist. It was a comment that she made. Unfortunately, the right wing, right, right wing of today's Supreme Court have latched on to that comment to suggest that this program that universities universally use to consider race among a myriad of other factors. Did your parents go to this university? Are you, are you an alumni child? Did somebody donate money? Do you play a sport? Do you, do you suffer from a, um, a disability or some sort of other handicap or, or things like that as they're trying to map out a, a student body that is diverse? And, and so justices like Amy Coney Barrett would say, well, when do we stop using this law? You know, my, my uh, fellow justice, Sandra Day O'Connor said, we should be able to get rid of it in 25 years. We're already at 20 years. How much longer, you know, how much longer should this diversity um, approach be used? Other justices like Gorsuch commented that, um, aren't there better ways to do this? Why don't you do other types of programs that don't focus on race in admission, but, but raise up minorities so that they um, will just naturally, even if it's a total colorblind selection process, admission process, they'll be part of the class. Do more in other areas of your university. Do more with high schools. Do more below. Do more in neighborhoods. And don't use race as the final factor. That's a comment by Gorsuch. But the one that struck me, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Karen, for your commentary. The one that struck me as the most ludicrous, the most tin-eared, and the most ironic Thomas. was Clarence Thomas. So Clarence Thomas, who voted against Sandra Day O'Connor's majority opinion back in 2001, shocker, actually had the brass to say out loud, sitting on that particular dais, I don't know what diversity means. I don't know what diversity is. I don't know how to define it. Really, look to your left and look to your right and look at the Hispanic American justice the three, the four women, the Jewish people, the black people that are on that bench. I'm not saying it was because of affirmative action. It wasn't. But don't sit there and tell me you don't know the merits of what a diverse organization would be in a learning experience when you operate in one right now. What did you think, Karen? 
So I thought it was a very interesting uh, analysis because really what they were saying, what the, what the plaintiffs were saying here is what you're doing is you're discriminating against Asians and that you're putting in factors in your process, in your application process that are soft factors that will that will discriminate against Asians. So it's really not about promoting people of color, you know, black people, Hispanic people, et cetera. It's about, it's about limiting the number of Asian people who are getting into these elite universities. And they cited, uh, there's nine states, including California, by the way, that, um, that doesn't allow this already. And they have the most diverse, uh, the most diverse public education system in the country. So it is possible. And so, you know, this, the plaintiffs here were saying that are, are largely represented by Asian Americans saying they're being held to a much higher standard and they are being denied opportunities. And, you know, what I thought was interesting about these, uh, these two um, cert petitions, you know, to, that were filed um, in, in both of these cases, one against Harvard, one against University of, of North Carolina, you know, they, they interestingly picked the oldest uh, private institution and the oldest public institution in the country in both, uh, and both, and that seemed to be by design. And, um, and the, the, the cert petition for North Carolina was very kind of, you know, they're very well-meaning and I know they want diversity, but it's illegal, you know, ever since Brown versus Board of Education, where they said you can't consider race, you know, in, um, in, um, in educational, in educational settings, uh, you know, that, that um, although they have, a, they have a good sort of intention, what they're doing is illegal. The Harvard cert petition was scathing was basically a condemnation of Harvard and they accused them of lying about lying about their statistics and about changing things to you know and about being disingenuous and they also talked about how in the 20s uh, in the 1920s I guess we're in the 20s again but this is the 2020s in the 1920s Harvard apparently um, tried to keep the they, they were noticing there are too many Jews who were at Harvard and so they were they were doing um, admissions uh, admissions they had admissions policies to try to limit the number of Jews um, in favor of diversity and so they're just saying this is just ca calling the same thing by by a different color and you're doing it again and you know so what struck me look you know what, what, the one thing that everyone um, acknowledged including Sandra Day O'Connor in um, in her Gruder um, decision um, is that when you take race into consideration, it is really dicey and it shouldn't, it should be the last resort. It should be after everything else has been tried, but not worked. It shouldn't be forever. It should be for a period of time because really in the end, we, we, we want to be an equal society where we don't have to do things like this. And, you know, and so, and so taking race into um, as a factor, as a checkbox is, is really what a lot of the debate was. Um, is really something that that I think what this fight is over because what the what they don't what the plaintiffs are saying here is if you want diversity how come 
how is a privileged black person whose parents went to Ivy League schools and they're very wealthy, how does that perspective bring you diversity over a you know, poor white person or an immigrant Asian person? I mean, that, that you know, it's not just about, what, what if the black person only checks the box of, of black, but then doesn't mention it in any way in their essay because they, were, they don't feel they were discriminated against or held back in any way? You know, so what they're saying, what they're arguing is that, that it shouldn't be a, a, a box checking thing, that it really should be a diversity of, of other types of things, a whole picture. And that, that seems to be what the, the arguments were over. But I thought it was sort of, I thought it was a really interesting argument. And, you know, in the end, to me, what it felt like is it feels like the schools are trying, are, are really trying to give reparations, frankly, to um, to the people in this country who have been discriminated against, you know, some who were slaves and who have been discriminated against by um, by Jim Crow laws and overt racism and micro racism and all of the other just well documented um, well documented racial history of this country, which is really our original sin that we just haven't been able to get out from under. And it really feels like what's happening is more of a reparations type thing but trying to fit it into a diversity argument. And that's why I think it's gonna fall flat with the justices in addition to them being conservative. But I think they're gonna have a lot of room to, to render an opinion here that says, you know, you're trying to call it diversity, but it's, you know, but you can't discriminate. You just can't discriminate based on race. And we have, you know, tons of, tons of uh, history here in this country and laws that prevent that. I, I just think they should call it what it is, which is, you know, what they need to do is really try to um, not just, you know, not, not just equality, but equity. You know, we, we need to, we need to level the playing field at, at some point. And that's what I think a lot of these things have been trying to do for, for, you know, black and brown people in this country. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's also hard when you, when you, you, the Asian American, when you hear what Harvard was doing against Asia, the Asian Americans, uh, the applicants, you know, that they're not likable or they speak softly or they don't seem to be a leader. I mean, it really seems to be, it's, it's culturally cringy and upsetting actually. So, um, you know, the whole the whole thing was was I think it's an uncomfortable topic. It's a difficult topic. You know, part of me wondered the reason why Harvard is even here, as you said, is because of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that says any um, any higher any institution that receives federal funding cannot use uh, race in admissions. And part of me wondered, well, why doesn't Harvard? They have a, they have the biggest endowment in the world. Like, why do they even? take federal funding if this is how they want to, you know, if they want to do it this way. I don't know. But, but so I just thought it was a, it was a um, very, very interesting um, um, just set of arguments. Yeah. I don't see it as reparations uh, because there's too many other people that make up uh, what would be a diverse classroom and campus than just people who are of African-American descent. Although I think that's really, really important. I went to public schools my whole life. I went to public high school, elementary school. I went to New York University, which is a private school, but in the middle of New York. I would not be the person I am today if I was surrounded by an all white or all Asian or all whatever group of perfect SAT board scoring people 
um, if I didn't have people from all, all the different states, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, sexual backgrounds and orientations, I would not be the person I am today. I have no doubt about that. And I have no doubt that that is what goes through the minds of, in good faith, of admissions officers when they're trying to assemble a limited class, right? It, as, as one of the justices commented, it's a zero-sum game. You give a seat to one person, that's one less seat you have for the next person. And if all you're going to do is put the blinder on and make it not not be able to peek underneath to see the person in totality, including their race, sexual orientation, uh, ethnicity, and the like. But all you're going to look at is, we'll just get artificial intelligence. We'll just run their board scores through a machine. The highest people that can also you know, play the oboe or play soccer because you got to have soccer players and oboe players, you know, in at school and all the other things under Title IX dealing with sports in education, and just take human beings out of it completely. What do you need human beings for? Highest board score that can also shoot a basket. You're on the basketball team and you're in. And if that results in an entirely or majority fill in the blank, so be it. That is the argument ultimately or that's the logical conclusion of the argument for the right wing. You have in order to make that callous calculus, you have to also acknowledge or or believe that the underlying society has overcome its racial inequality issues so that everybody is on a level playing field, that everybody can pull themselves up by the bootstraps or as Justice Kagan likes to say, some people can't reach their boots in order to pull themselves up by bootstraps in this country. You have to also, at the same time, hold the belief that below the selection process, in society at large, everybody is basically on an even playing field. We know, as thinking human beings, that that is not true. That the people below that process some have a leg up because of culture, because of money, because of connections, and some don't. Right? But in Pope your Mark. and well, well, I'm not done with the point. Then I'll I'll turn it over to you because we want we went through reparations. Let me go through mine. In your own building, wherever you live, Karen, your children have an advantage that some person down the hallway or in 16B doesn't have in that process. We are not as we can see from the current society, so far along, I don't care about 20 years or 25 years, where we can be colorblind in all of our decision-making. Affirmative action still has a place, as far as I'm concerned, in society, unless and until the playing field below is equal. Otherwise, you've got people who are disadvantaged at the beginning of the race, then being told, Go, run, run as fast as you can. But I'm carrying extra weights. I'm I, I, the guy next to me is running without holding 50 pounds. It doesn't matter. You run, and if you end up at the finish line, we'll let you in. And if you don't, we won't. That is not the society that I want to live in. And there is a way to read 
Title, Title IX, Title VI, and the Equal to Protection Clause, where using race as a factor among many in order to accomplish the laudable goal of diversity, the goal that Clarence Thomas and the others want to shit on as not knowing what it means because they want to diminish the goal to say that it can never overcome the discriminatory aspect of the of the law. Right, if you if you shrink it to such a bullshit concept, well, of course, you're not going to be able to use this policy to accomplish that goal, a goal that the rest of the Supreme Court led by Clarence Thomas doesn't seem to think is needed, necessary, or is credible. But I believe it is. And that's why I don't see this as just reparations for just the black experience, just as I don't see the case as only being about you know, whether we're going to have 100% Asian Americans sitting in a Harvard entering class. Yeah, look, I, I do agree with you ultimately. And I, it would be a shame if, uh, if race can't be taken into consideration for sure. Um, there's a really interesting video on YouTube about privilege and it's you know puts a bunch of people in a, just a group of people um, young people in a line and says you know everybody they ask a bunch of questions and you know if your parents are still married take a step forward if your parents you know if you if you were never hungry and didn't know where your food was you know take a step back if you're we're in foster care you know take a step back like you know and it and it just show it, it asks all the privilege questions and all the um all the um not questions. And at the end, you see it's all the white people that have moved forward and all the black people are behind. It's the people carrying the backpack that you're talking about and expected to um, to do as well. And, and the playing field isn't level, which is exactly why I believe there should be reparations because it really is, that's the issue to me. Um, is that you know our our society is is still racist. It's not. It doesn't just go back to slavery and descendants of slave slavery, or even just Jim Crow laws. I mean, look at our prisons. Look at our jails. You know, it's all black people and you know and and some Hispanic people and not a lot of white people. And it's 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 we we are a racist society and we still are. And and these these institutions like Harvard, et cetera. The, this is the access to a changed life, a different life, to privilege, to generational wealth, et cetera, et cetera. But my concern and my issue here is this to me isn't black versus white. This is about Asian applicants, at least for Harvard, not necessarily for UNC as I saw it, but at least at Harvard. You know, the, the discovery and the trial and the evidence that came out below was showed that there are these practices of discrimination and microaggressions against Asians. And, you know, Asians have been discriminated against in this country as well and continue to be. I mean, Asian hate crimes are up. You know, you've got this, this ex horrible president calling it, you know, the China virus and, you know, all the discrimination against Asians during COVID. And, you know, it's, it's, that's where I struggle with this is, is it does it. I, and, but I, I guess I, I guess I agree um, very much that race should be considered, but I believe, um, and I believe in diversity as well, but I also don't like the way um the way I think Asian Americans in this country are are both 
discriminated against, there's hate crimes against, and and also just that that you know there are there are Asian Americans who figure out how to, they don't check up the box. They, you know, change their names so it doesn't sound Asian. Or they de they de-Asianify themselves to make themselves look better in these in these application, um, in these these college admission applications. I mean, again, you know, read the cert petition for Harvard, you'll see some of these examples that they put in there about uh, that they got from the Harvard admission, you know, committee. Oh, perfect SAT scores, but he's Asian, you know? It's just that doesn't seem right either. So, but you, but you could, but you could have an entire. Then we'll have to wrap the show up. You could have, if this was your goal, an entire entering class of one ethnic group, one racial group, entirely. You could fill every seat in Harvard with perfect board score Asian Americans, perfect board score Jewish Americans, perfect board score just white Anglo-Saxon Americans. And that's what your entering class would be. No, but that's not Are what you, they're saying. What they're saying, Popak, is don't just make it about race. Make it about other things like I, I have know, economic, so, socioeconomic diversity, for example, yeah. first generation diversity, you know, bring diversity of perspectives and that will give you a diverse student body. And it well, that's what we're going to end up with. That, that's what we're going to end up with with Roberts, because he's going to probably pull this thing together to salvage some aspect of affirmative action in the selection process. Um, but look, it's uh, we're, we're going to see what five and a half hours of oral argument, what kind of result it makes in case law that won't just be binding on Harvard. It won't just be binding on University of North Carolina, but will be part of the fabric of all higher education and the selection process related to entering classes going forward. So a tremendously important case. And, uh, you know, we'll get a ruling in four to six months and that you and I will talk about that um, extensively. Uh, people ask me and Karen and Ben on the show, we love the show. Um, it really helps us. It arms us with facts that we can feel confident when we have conversations with our friends and family and even strangers about these concepts at the intersection of law and politics. How can we help support you? And it's really easy. We're a free subscription service. Um, there's no charge. Um, we're, we're not you don't have to it's not a plus service you don't pay for us monthly um but the way you can support us is helping us stay atop the ratings for a top news program which we are consistently week in and week out globally and that you can do by not only watching us here on youtube where we get seventy thousand to one hundred and twenty-five thousand just on youtube per week per show but also the audio downloads of the exact same podcast are really important to us. So if you go on, for instance, Apple Pod, find the show, hit plus, you are now a subscriber for free. Do that. Listen to the show for a few minutes or re-listen to it after watching us on the day that we drop it today on Wednesday. Listen to a lot of these concepts and unpack the show over the course of the week. And that helps us as well. And you can get it everywhere else, Spotify, Google, anywhere you get your podcast. Go download, subscribe to, and follow the audio. That helps us. We sell uh, merchandise, which helps pay the bills. One of them is the Wheels of Justice Legal AF shirt, which is really doing very, very well. It's flying off the shelf, and we'll put a link to that today. And those are the two main ways. We don't currently have a Patreon page, 
Patreon link that Midas Brothers use. We may one day. But for right now, those are the two major ways that you can help Karen and me and Ben keep bringing the show and the independent journalism, independent analysis week after week after week. We've reached the end of the midweek edition of Legal AF. I welcome our regular listeners and followers and anybody new to the show that has joined us off of President Biden's speech tonight. Welcome you as well. Next week, you heard it here first, Karen Freeman-Agnifilo, Michael Popak, same room, one room, two microphones, two podcast hosts. We're going to try it and we're going to see how everybody likes it. So I look forward to seeing you all next week. Shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers. Thank you.